I want you to think a little, about, a little bit about your regular life, the things you do every day. And as you're thinking about that, what's that thing that you do on a regular basis that it drives you crazy that you have to do it over and over and over again? <laughs> what's that thing in your life? What's that thing in your life as you're thinking about it that you feel like just as soon as you get it done, you turn around and you have to do it all over again. Now imagine, imagine this is the thing that if you, if you had a giant pile of money, it would be the first thing that you would take that money and pay someone else to do for you because you're sick of doing it. For some of you, for some of you, it's, it's like washing the car. Now there's weird people out there that find washing the car therapeutic. For the rest of us, washing the car is like this. You get everything out. You go over it, you, you, you get it as clean as you can, you get all the dirt, you dry it as complete as you can, get all the water spots, you spray the stuff on the tires, you watch the weather, it's not going to rain tomorrow, you drive it to work and you hear thunder and you realize your nice clean car is now dirty and you got to wash it again if you want it to be clean. Or maybe it is laundry for you. You know, you feel like just as soon as you get all the clothes sorted, you drag them down to the washing machine, you get them all washed, you get them dried, you get them folded, you're putting the last shirt or the last pair of pants away in the drawer and you turn around and somehow in the process, the hamper is full of clothes again. And you really don't know how it happened, but as soon as you're done, you got to do it all over again. Now, I have a house with small kids. I've mentioned before when I've talked, I've got two little boys. And so I want to show you our, I can't believe I have to do this all over again thing. This is a picture of the toy room in our house, 7.30, Friday morning. Look how nice and clean that is. Everything's got a place, everything's put together, all the toys are in bins, the books are on the shelves. Then what happens? The kids wake up, and at 10 o'clock at night, this is what you have. This is Friday at 10. We had a great day, though. We had a fun time. We built a Lego skyscraper. It went all the way to the ceiling almost before it got knocked over. We had like this big Transformer wrestling match against the bad guys and the Decepticons. Optimus Prime won. I bet you can't believe that. We caught, we did. We caught a bunch of bad guys. We had some police chases. We had a bunch of car crashes. And after hours and hours of playing and having fun, our nice clean room is a giant mess. And you know well enough that if I want the room to look clean again, what do we have to do? First thing is get the kids to bed. (laughs) Then the next thing is that we, well, for the sake of preaching in church, I should be honest, mostly my wife, (laughs) will get the bins back out, get everything sorted, get them put away, get the toys on the shelves, get things tucked away. And the next morning it'll happen over again. And if we want the room to be clean, we got to clean it up over again. You see, we're smart enough here to realize that in our lives, in our everyday lives, there are those things that we do that require repeated effort, that have short-lived results, and they only bring us temporary fulfillment. There's those things that we do in our everyday lives, and no matter how attentive we are to them and how much we do them over and over again, we turn around and we're just going to have to do the same thing one more time. We realize that there's this gap, right? There's this gap between what we can do, what our, where our effort can take us, and the ultimate result that we want to achieve. No matter how perfect a job you do of washing your car, pretty soon you're going to have to wash it again. No matter if you wash every piece of clothing in your house, 
After a day, there's going to be dirty clothes to wash again. No matter if we get every toy put in the proper place, after another day of playing, we've got to clean it up again. We've got to do certain things over and over again because they're never finally done. There's this gap between where our effort can take us and the ultimate result we want to achieve. Now that we're all depressed because we have to go home sometime this week and cut the grass again or you know the car's dirty and you got to wash it again, I bring this up not to make you feel bad or to annoy you or to dread the fact that you're going to have to do that thing again. I bring this up because I want to ask the question, what do you do? What do you do when you experience that gap in your spiritual life? What do you do when you experience the gap between what you're able to do yourself and the ultimate result that you want to achieve? What do you do when you experience the gap between your best efforts, between all the good things that you can do, between your maximum capacity and what it takes to truly satisfy God? See, here's what I know. In a room this size, there's lots of different people here. There's some here today who, when you think of your spiritual life, it's a little bit like that messy room I had on the screen a moment ago. You look at your life, and you know you've had some problems. You've had some struggles. You've had some messes that need to be cleaned up. And your approach to the messes in your life to this point has been, I'm going to try harder next time. I'm going to do better. I'm going to get down and I'm going to clean that mess up myself. And if I can get the mess clean enough, or if I can just do enough good things to outweigh the mess, then God will be satisfied with me and we will be right again. Yet, if you're honest with yourself, you know that in the back of your mind you have this sneaking suspicion that no matter how hard you try to clean up your own mess, it's never going to be clean enough for God. There's others here today that you've realized that you can't clean that mess up on your own. You've said, I need God's help. And you've gone and you've asked him for forgiveness. And yet the mess of what your life used to be still haunts you. And you're still weighed down by the guilt and the shame of the mess your life used to have in it. For others, maybe the mess that we're talking about isn't a mess in the past, but it's the struggles that you face. The struggles that keep cropping up and every time your anger or your lust or your foul mouth or your pride or your selfishness or whatever your mess is pops up, every time you wonder, can God really forgive us again? Or maybe you have experienced God's forgiveness, but as you've lived your life with Jesus, you feel like although he's forgiven your sin, you still have to live up You still have to satisfy him with your behavior. You still have to do enough good things to keep him happy with you. Wherever you're at in your spiritual journey this morning, I want to be really upfront about where I want us to go today. Here's what I want for you and what I want for me. As we study God's word together today, I want us to bump up against a gap. I want us to bump up against a gap between what our best effort is and what it really takes to be right with God. I want us to feel the weight of that gap. I want us to feel the hopelessness of our ability to cross that gap. And then I want us to find the hope in the fact that Jesus, not us, not our effort, 
Jesus spans the gap between the best that we can be and what it takes to really satisfy God. So with that said, let's direct our attention to Hebrews chapter 10. As you get your eyes down there, let me tell you a little bit about what's going on here. The author is writing to a group of people that the title of the letter gives away. He's writing to Hebrews, or Jewish people, first century Jews to be specific. And to understand a little bit bit about how they might take what he's writing, we have to realize that these people that are receiving this passage have been living under a religious system for 1,500 years. They were living under a religious system that was all about doing the right things in the proper way, time after time after time, in order to make themselves approachable to God. They lived under a system that said, if you just follow these procedures and you do them right, you'll be able to approach God. And what this author is saying is, one, your system hasn't worked. And two, there's a new way to approach God, and that's through Jesus Christ. Let's look at Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1, together. The author writes there, he says, the law, the law. For them, the law was the Old Testament commandments. It was all the things that God had said to do. It was the rules, the procedures, the practices, the regulations that they had to do just right in order to satisfy what God required. God had laid out in very clear detail, very specifically, do these things. If you do these things, you can be right with me. He says that this law, all of your rules... They're only a shadow of the good things that are coming. He says, your laws that you've had, they're not the real thing. They're a shadow. A shadow sort of represents the real thing, but it directs us to the real thing. He says, what you've been doing is only a shadow of what is reality. He says, only a shadow, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it, being the law, can never, by the same sacrifices repeatedly, endlessly, year after year make perfect those who draw near to worship if it could would they not have stopped being offered for the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would not have would no longer have felt guilty for their sins verse three but those sacrifices are an annual reminder because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins you see god had given them this law He said, do these things. But God was smart. And he realized, you're never going to be able to do these things. So on top of it, he came up with this whole system for what to do when they couldn't do what he said to do. It was called their sacrificial system. And they had all kinds of sacrifices. If you've ever read through Leviticus, it gets confusing trying to keep it all straight. There were trespass offerings and sin offerings and burnt offerings and grain offerings and peace offerings. And sometimes you had to sacrifice a bull and sometimes it was a sheep and sometimes it was goats and doves or flour or cakes. And there was this whole extensive system of what to do. And then one time a year, one time a year, there was this granddaddy of them all, big old sacrifice day called the Day of Atonement. It was like the day that was going to make up for everything else throughout the whole year. You might have heard of it called Yom Kippur. And what they did on this day was the high priest, who was like the top, the top guy between the people and God, he would put on all of his special clothes, and he would do all of his special washing. And then he would take a bull, and he would sacrifice the bull. 
And that was to make up for all of his sins and all of the sins that his family committed. And then he would get these two goats. And he would take the goats and they would cast lots as sort of like a way to determine which one to choose. And whichever goat was chosen, he would sacrifice that goat and take its blood. And he would go into the Holy of Holies. And this priest was only allowed to go in there one time a year on this special day. He would go into the Holy of Holies and it was entering into the presence of God himself and he would make a sacrifice there for the sins of the people. And then he would take that other goat, the one that hadn't been chosen, and he would put his hand on top of that goat's head and he would confess all of the sins of Israel. Now, a little sidebar, I'm kind of wondering, okay, how do you make this goat stand still long enough to confess these sins? Because it's been a year. And I don't know about you, but we're, we're smaller here than the nation of Israel, I would imagine. But if we had to confess all of our sins on a squirrely little goat, how long would that take? So he's, he, you got to imagine this priest is trying to hold down this goat and trying to confess these sins. And, and finally, after how, I don't know how long, he gets all the sins confessed. And then they take this goat. And at this point, this goat, I am sure, is happy to oblige. And they let it go out into the desert. And it runs off. And it symbolizes the fact that all the sins of the people have been forgiven and are remembered no more. And this was everything that they would do outwardly to try to satisfy God. This was their system. Now, as we hear about it today, it, it, it is really complicated, and frankly, it's kind of weird, right? I mean, we don't do this stuff anymore. But what we have to realize looking at these passages is for these people, this whole system of keeping God satisfied was as integral to their culture as the Super Bowl or rock music or democracy is to our culture. Or I guess in Western PA, it's more as integral as guns and hunting and cookies at a wedding reception. So it... It was part of who they are. And it was all centered on the things that they needed to do to keep God satisfied with them. It was all centered on all these outward things we need to do to make ourselves right with God. And what this passage is teaching is is that everything you've been doing for 1,500 years isn't working, folks. You're sinning. You're sacrificing, you're confessing, and yet day after day, year after year, you got to turn around and you got to do it again. The author's saying, hey folks, your system is broke. He said, not only is your system not forgiving sins, he says in verse, in verse 2, he says that the guilt for the sins isn't being removed. In fact, every time you do this, it's just reminding you of a, how big of a screw-up you are. Because didn't you just do this last year? Didn't you just do this yesterday? And now you're doing it again. He's saying there's this gap. He said, you guys are trying hard, but the gap's not being closed by your efforts. Now, you might be asking, okay, we're reading this passage written 2,000 years ago to a group of people who've been practicing a system that was invented 3,500 years ago. What does it have to do with us? Well, here's the thing, guys. We don't offer sacrifices anymore. I'm not going to be bringing a goat down here to get us all right with God today. Or I'd be on the news for all the wrong reasons. But human nature hasn't changed. And in human minds, there's still this perception that we have to do things 
to earn God's favor, that we have to do enough to make ourselves right with him. It can be a lot of different things. For some people, it's, it's coming to church. Some grew up being told, you got to go to church or God will be mad at you if you don't. And instead of coming to church because you want to worship God for what he's done in your life, instead of coming to church because you want to learn from his word so that you can grow and follow him better, being a church is more of having your check in the attendance column on God's roster so that when he does his weekly or annual, or I don't even know how often we think he reviews it, you'll see, okay, you have pretty good attendance. You're good to go. As a pastor, I've had people come to me and say, Pastor, I want to get baptized. Pastor, I want, to, I want to join the church. I want to be a member. And when I ask them, why do you want to do that? They say, well, I just feel like I need to do this so I can be right with God. We want outward practices that will make us right with God. For some people, it's serving. It's thinking, man, if I just get involved, if I work harder for God, if I do more, if I volunteer here, and if I volunteer here, and if I take care of my neighbor, and if I help other people, and if I do good things, maybe God in heaven will look down and he'll see me working so hard, and he'll say, wow, that person, he's really trying. Okay, he, I'm, that's good enough for me. For some people, it's giving money. In our society, this is a big one. In 2006, Warren Buffett, one of the wealthiest men in the world, he decided that he was going to give away 85% of his fortune to charities. And when CBS News interviewed him and reported on it, and they asked him about this generous thing he was doing, Warren Buffett said, there are many ways to get to heaven, but I think this is a pretty good one. And we think if we just donate some money or we give, that'll earn God's favor. And what this author is saying and what we need to be very, very, very clear about this morning is this. Nothing, 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 absolutely not a thing that we can do in our power can ever make us right with God. Whether it's sacrifices or religious things, coming to church, giving money, serving, praying and reading the Bible, all those things that we try to do to earn God's favor, none of them ultimately satisfy him when it comes to being right with him. In fact, if you look at verse 11, he writes this, he like repeats himself over and over again. I think it's pretty clear he's trying to make a point and he says it again in verse 11. He says, day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. He's saying every priest, if you take every priest in our country and they stand every day and do something religious and they give their maximum effort, he's saying again and again, they offer sacrifices, but they never take away sins. He's saying there's this gap, folks. He says there's this gap between all the sacrifices and all the religious things that you can do and what it takes to really be right with God. How about if we look at it this way? Some of you have been looking at this weight bench this morning and you're wondering, what is that there for? First, for the curious, I know some of you guys have been distracted. You're trying to count how much weight is here. This is 505 pounds. That's a lot of weight. Now, I know the next question you're wondering is this. Is Joe going to bench that weight this morning? I, I get it. I know. I get that a lot. You must work out, right? My, my physique gives it away, but you might find this shocking. I am not going to bench this weight because I can't. It's too much. But let's pretend, you know, 505 pounds is a lot of weight, but let's pretend that it's 5,000 pounds. 5,000 pounds of weight. No one could bench that much. 
And even if I sat down on this bench and I laid back and I put my hands on the bar and I decided, you know what, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to give my best. I'm going to do as much as I can. I'm going to try really, really hard. No matter how hard I tried, no matter how much I wanted to, I would never even be able to come close to moving this bar. But let's say this. Let's say, okay, I'm going to come up with a plan. I'm going to bench this weight and here's how I'm going to do it. I'm going to come over here. I'm going to devote myself to potato chips. And my favorite shows, a little binge watching on Netflix, and my couch and a pillow. And I just decided, you know what? This is my plan. I'm going to sit on my couch, eat potato chips, watch TV, and after doing that for a while, I'll be able to bench that. And I know what you're thinking. Joe, I didn't think you were that sharp, but this is, you're really stupider than I thought. Okay, okay. That's, that's a bad plan, right? Okay. So I really want to bench that weight. Here's what I'm going to do. Instead of sitting on my couch, I'm going to come over here. I'm going, to, I'm going to work really hard. I'm going to try really hard. I'm going to do all the things that they say to do to get strong. I'm going to get some weights. I'm going to join a gym. And every day, I'm going to go and I'm going to work out. No, I'm not going to go every day. I'm going to go several times a day. I'm just going to keep on lifting weights until I start to get stronger and stronger and stronger. And then I'm going to go. I'm going to buy muscle milk, strawberries and cream. I'm sure this tastes great. And I'm going to start drinking this stuff. And I'm going to put this in my body. And I'm going to do, do what I see other weightlifters, really strong people doing. Because if I take this, I'll start getting stronger. And then I'm going to go buy literature about how to lift more weights. And I'm going to look like this guy. And if I read on some page in here, I can shred my abs, which doesn't even sound fun. That sounds like that really hurts. <laughs> and I'm going to do all this stuff, Right? I'm going to do all this. I'm going to lift and I'm going to eat right and I'm going to read all this stuff. And then I'll be able to lift this weight. But you know the truth, right? Whether I devote myself to laziness or whether I devote myself to getting as strong as I possibly can be, nothing I'm going to do is going to put me closer to lifting 5,000 pounds of weight. It's not going to make a difference because it's too much weight. Sure, this looks better on the outside, and other people might look at me and say, what a strong guy, what a hard worker, I want to be like that. But in terms of moving that bar, it's not going to matter. And what the Bible says here is this, he's saying, look, to make, to make yourself right with God, it's kind of like you have to lift that heavy weight. And he's saying, whether you do nothing or whether you do every religious thing from the waking moments, of every waking moment of your day, and whether you try hard, and even if people look at you and say, what a religious person, what a good person, look at all the good things he does. If anybody's going to heaven, it's that person. He's saying either one, it doesn't matter because neither, nothing we can do is going to make us right with God. It's too much weight. And so at this point, you might be asking the question, what kind of crazy system did God design? Why would God design a system for approaching him that he knew people can never do? Why did he design a system that was ineffective? Did he make a mistake? And the answer is no. God's system was perfectly designed for the results that it got because the system of sacrifice wasn't designed to make these people right with God. 
It was designed to show them how they could never do anything in their power to be right with him. It was designed to cause them to bump up against the gap between their best, their most religious efforts and what it really took to satisfy him. Because God wanted them to feel the hopelessness of their efforts. And he wants us to know the hopelessness of our efforts. Not so that we'll give up in despair, but so that in desperation, we'll ask the most critical question that we can ever ask for our eternal lives. He wants, to ask, he wants us to ask, if I can't take away my sin, who can? And in verse 12, we find our answer. The author writes there in verse 12, when this priest, not any priest, but a particular priest, Jesus, when Jesus had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. He said the priest stood day after day because their work was never done. Some of us today are standing and working and trying and our work is never done. But he said when Jesus came and offered a sacrifice, he sat down because his work was complete. He sat down at the right hand of God and since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool because by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Jesus, not me, not you, not anyone, Jesus made a sacrifice that was good for all time. What did he sacrifice? It had to be perfect. It had to be good enough. It had to be like no other sacrifice ever made. And the only thing that fit the requirement was Jesus himself. And so he gave up his own life on a cross. He allowed himself to be killed to be able to pay, to be able to forgive once for all time, all sins. We couldn't do it for ourselves, so Jesus came and did it for us. And with that, the Bible's saying that all these outward things we do to try to satisfy and keep up with what God requires, it's saying those are all futile. But the only thing that worked had been done. And as we continue on in verse 15 and 16, this is what he says. He says, the Holy Spirit testifies to us about this because first he says, this is the covenant I will make with them. After that time, says the Lord, I will put my laws in their hearts. He's saying, because of Jesus, it's no longer about all the things that we have to do. It's no longer about coming over here and lifting enough weights. It's not about being able to do all the right things. He's saying, it's not all this outward stuff, but Jesus instead is going to change our heart. He's going to change what's on the inside. It's not about putting on a show. It's not about impressing God, but it's Jesus making a change inside. He says, I will write my laws on their hearts and I will write them on their minds. Jesus changes us from the inside. And then in verse 17, this is something that is just critical for us to hear. He adds, their sins and their lawless acts, he will what? He says, I will remember them no more. He says, I will remember them no more. Because in verse 18, where, there has been, where, where these have been forgiven, there's no longer any sacrifice for sin. 
See, through Jesus, God changes our hearts and then he takes our sin, he takes our shame, he takes our guilt, he takes all those things that we know about ourselves, those things that everyone else knows and those things that only we know. He takes our anger. He takes our pride. He takes our hate. Our lust. Our immorality. He takes our guilt. He takes our shame. He takes you can fill in the blank for yourself. He takes all these sin, all the things that we've made a mess of in our life, and it says he forgives them. But it's not the kind of forgiveness that we sometimes think of. Sometimes we can think of forgiveness as Jesus comes along and he takes our sins and he just puts an X through them. Kind of like when you pay a bill and someone marks it paid. You can see that it was paid, but you can also see what was purchased. And we, sometimes we think he takes our sin and he just crosses them out. But then we live our lives in such a way that we can look at them and we can say, okay, that's who I am. And we can remember them and we can continually feel the shame. See, this was the way the Old Testament sacrificial system worked. They would sacrifice, but he says every year they were reminded again of what they had done wrong. And Jesus doesn't forgive us in a way that X's out our sins so that we can be reminded again. Instead, this is what he does. He forgives our sin in a way that only he can, not by just crossing them out, but by covering them with his work on the cross. So that your sins are forgotten. So that when you say, but God, I've done this, he says, I don't know what you're talking about. Because when God looks at us, he doesn't see our sin and he doesn't see the good things we've done, he sees Jesus Christ. Now what are we going to do with this this morning? What I've just shared with you is the basic gospel, the basic good news of Jesus Christ. What are you going to do with it? Jesus didn't come to die so that we could have something to talk about in church. He came to die so that our lives could be changed. And there's some here today that, that you've been on that weight bench for a long time. You've been on that weight bench pushing and you're getting tired because you're realizing that you can't move it. Today is the day to quit pushing. Today is the day to get up off the bench and turn to Jesus Christ and say, forgive me, I can't do it on my own. Today is the day to accept the forgiveness, to accept his love and his unconditional forgiveness through the cross and to give him your life. There's others here today that you've accepted that forgiveness, but you keep looking back on the sin in your life and saying, you know what? I know God's forgiven me, but you see your sin is X'd out, not covered. Today's the day to realize that you're the only one looking at it. God doesn't look at that anymore. He sees Jesus covering you. And today's the day to quit living under the burden of all the sin and the guilt and the shame that you have. Quit living under the burden of the person that you used to be and start walking in the freedom 
of the person that God wants to change you into. Walk in the freedom of the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. There's others here, you've, you've, you've experienced God's forgiveness for a long time. In fact, it's been such a long time since you've accepted this message that your Christian life has sort of turned into an I have to instead of an I get to. You know, you used to really, this was really passionate for you, but now it's really just about keeping God satisfied. And the things that you do, like being here at church and, and, and studying the Bible and praying and trying to grow, they've sort of changed from I do these things to become closer to Jesus and follow him better to I do these things because I think I need to earn up to what God has given me. Today, be reminded, be reminded that nothing in our effort can satisfy God. He wants us to draw close to him, though, because it pleases him when we grow a relationship with him. Find that forgiveness again. Now, this is the point of the message where it's about two minutes till the service time is over, and we could wrap up and have a nice prayer and be kind of uplifted and go get lunch. But there's one more thing that I feel like the author here wants us to know. Because, see, here's, here's the thing. If we went home now, I fear that we'd leave you with a false perception about something, and that's this. See, there's some people who find this message of forgiveness, and they accept it, and then it dawns on them. You know, if Jesus will forgive anything, that means that I can keep on doing anything that I want to do. They say, you know what, I, don't, don't judge me, I'm going to live my life how I want to live it. I'm going to sort of devote myself to potato chips and Netflix because Jesus will forgive me. Instead of responding to Christ's sacrifice with a life, of, with a life devoted to him, we can be tempted to respond with a life devoted to ourselves. So there's one more passage I want you to read because see, when when the author of this book got to the sentence about remember your sins no more, he didn't put down his pen. He continued on, and in verse 26, he writes this. And this is one of those passages, I didn't put this here, God put this here. It's a hard passage, but it's there, and we need to acknowledge it. And he says, if we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice is left for sins but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think a man deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified him, and who has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, it is mine to avenge, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. Then finally, in verse 31, it's a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Now this passage, I just want to be really, really clear. This passage isn't saying that if you accept Christ and you receive forgiveness and you begin to follow him and then you sin, you mess up, it's not saying that, well, at that point you're toast, you're done. And it's not saying that there won't be some losses that also come with the victories in our lives. What it's saying is the message of forgiveness isn't a license to disobey God. He's saying if we're deliberately, willfully, over and over again, 
with an I don't care God attitude, disobeying God because we're saying, oh, God will just forgive me. What we're really doing is taking our dirty feet and wiping them on the precious gift that Jesus has given us. And we're insulting the spirit of grace. See, Jesus saves us so that we can be free from sin. He doesn't save us so that we can be free to sin. He saves us so we can devote ourselves to him, so that the guilt and the shame will be gone. Yet when we take that forgiveness and say, I can do what I want, God will forgive it. He says, God's not stupid. He knows what you're doing. And he closes, he doesn't expound on it, but he says it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. So this morning, my question to you is, what do you need to do today? What do you need to do? The worship team is going to come and they're going to play a song that just drives home the message that we found in Hebrews. What do you need to do? Do you need to accept forgiveness? Do you need to put behind you the guilt and shame because God has? Do you need to deal with some sin? My question to you is, is there something you need to take care of? Pastors and elders are going to be at the front to pray with you as they play this song. Don't wait. Come forward. Let us pray with you and take care of it today.